The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. This will feel a little weird. This is the construct. It's our loading program. We can load anything from clothing to equipment, weapons, training simulations, anything we need. Right now, we're inside a computer program? Is it really so hard to believe? Your clothes are different, the plugs in your arms and head are gone. Your hair has changed. Your appearance now is what we call residual self-image. It is the mental projection of your digital self. This... this isn't real. What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, what you can taste and see, then real is simply electrical signals interpreted by your brain. This is the world that you know. The world as it was at the end of the 20th century. It exists now only as part of a neural interactive simulation that we call the Matrix. You've been living in a dream world, Neo. This is the world as it exists today. Welcome everyone, it is Thursday, February 16, 2017. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Yes, welcome to Reality, and Reality is once again the topic of Just Right Today, and joining us to discuss that topic is none other than writer, blogger, leader of the Freedom Party of Ontario, employment lawyer, Paul McKeever. How you doing, Paul? Very well, Bob. Nice to have you back. Right after we remind our listeners that they should write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, including Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and, of course, all of our past broadcasts. Well, Paul, you've been in an interesting, I guess we'd call it a debate, back and forth, and certainly describing some of the basic issues that people are dealing with on, in their daily lives that we don't realize they're working on these premises until we find out when we have a conversation with them that maybe we're not all on the same page in some right. areas of life. Well, Want to tell us what happened? Yeah, well, of course, you're referring to the recent debate uh, that happened. I think it was on uh, uh, January 21st of this year. Sam Harris, who's known for such books as The End of Faith, I believe it was called, uh, which dealt with Islam, and uh, Jordan Peterson, who's a University of Toronto uh, professor who recently was under fire for refusing to use uh, made-up gender pronouns. They had a debate. It wasn't really a de- planned as a debate, but more as a conversation. And they were going to carry uh, cover such topics as religion, science, atheism, foundations of morality, meaning, Peterson's interest in mythology, fear of nihilism. But lo and behold, they got stuck on butting heads over the issue of what 
does truth mean or what is the nature of truth? And that conversation lasted some hour and a half or more. Well, it was painful. It, it, it was, it was <laughs> much like a dog chasing his tail. And, uh, but I got drawn into it by somebody who said, you really ought to listen to this. They're looking for commentary because Sam Harris was saying, look, we're going to have to draw an end to this conversation. We're, we're getting nowhere. Maybe the listenership will be able to tell me what I'm missing. And so after listening to this, it became apparent to me what, what Sam Harris was missing. And I wrote a blog entry and I recorded it for the people who want to listen to it on, on my YouTube uh, channel, youtube.com slash Paul McKeever, just titled, uh, What Sam Harris Was Missing, Read Jordan Peterson and What is True. I emailed this off to Drs. Harris and Peterson, and uh, Dr. Peterson decided to tweet out about a day or so later that he thought it was a good discussion on what went wrong during his conversation with uh, Sam Harris. And the result has been that in just a few, I'd say, I'd say three to four days, it's gotten something, somewhere in the range of 6,500 to 7,000 views, plus however many people have been reading it. So it's, it's really been uh, an interesting topic for me to, to uh, you know, to address, but uh, certainly one of the more interesting things as far as my readership and listenership have gone. Uh, what was it that attracted his attention to you? It seemed clear to me that Sam Harris, as much as he said he was familiar with pragmatism and Jordan Peterson identified himself early in the conversation as a pragmatist, that he really didn't understand the underpinnings of pragmatist truth, what it means in terms of pragmatists' views of reality, whether they can know it, and so on and so forth. So I that's be where I went. I'll be honest with you. I, I, I might have fallen into the same trap. I didn't realize pragmatists went quite that far, and I've, I've been criticizing pragmatism for quite a long time as a philosophy, not as this idea that it's just something practical. Could you, um, Paul, just encapsulate that argument Yeah, well, so basically what you're going to hear uh, Sam Harris say is that there are facts that exist independently of anybody's ability to think about them or know them, and that truth is about having your thoughts about reality correspond to reality. He thought that that's pretty obvious. That's certainly what most people think truth is. Jordan Peterson, however, when presented with scenario after scenario, said, no, I don't agree that that fact, that so-called fact, is true. But the point is that Sam Harris was dumbfounded at Peterson's refusal to accept what he thought were simple and obvious truths. And my observation was that that was because Sam Harris had a huge misunderstanding about the underpinnings of Jordan Peterson's pragmatist theory of truth. Right. He he was very explicit in the discussion. He says, look, to Sam Harris, he says, I said I was a pragmatist at the beginning. And I think that Sam Harris's problem was that he couldn't put himself in the shoes of a pragmatist. He didn't understand the jargon of what Peterson was talking about. That's right. And why does it matter? Why would the average person say this should matter to them? Well, I think if you have discussion, and I, I don't want to interject to Paul, but if you'll allow me, I think that to have any coherent discussion, one must be on the same page. One must understand their terms. One must know what the other person's position is. And I think that for the hour and a half that they talked, Harris and Peterson were talking at odds. They were trying to find the, the common frame reference for themselves, and they couldn't find it. At least Harris and, couldn't and find it. And yet they it. kept yeah. saying that they agreed with each other on some level, but couldn't understand where they agreed and where they just didn't. Yeah, I think a lot of that overture about we agree, but I think we're on the same page and all this kind of stuff was wrong, but perhaps just a bit of diplomacy or trying to be nice to one another. The other thing is, I think that it's fair to say that Jordan Peterson, having identified himself as a pragmatist, and Sam Harris having said that he knew all about pragmatism, having been an undergraduate student in Richard Rorty's class, uh, I think from that point out, Jordan Peterson said, oh, well, then I don't have to go into the underpinnings of pragmatism. You already know what they are. And then was dumbfounded that Sam Harris couldn't understand Jordan Peterson. This conception of truth, I think we have to nail down because there are 
facts whether or not any of us are aware of those facts. So before there was any understanding of the energy trapped in an atom, the energy was still trapped in the atom. Our language didn't put the energy in the atom. Physical reality has a character whether or not there are apes around to talk about it. It's possible for there to be scientifically correct, realistically true conceptions of the world that are bad for us. If knowing what is true got you all killed, well then that would be a truth that wouldn't be worth knowing, but it wouldn't make it less true. You clearly have to have a conception of facts and truth that is possible to know that exceeds what anyone currently knows and exceeds any concern about whether it is useful or compatible with your own survival even to know these truths. Okay, well then I would say that I don't think that facts are necessarily true. <laughs> so I don't think that scientific facts, even if they're correct from within the domain that they were generated, I don't think that that necessarily makes them true. The truth value of a proposition can be evaluated whether or not this is a fact worth knowing or whether or not it's dangerous to know. No, but that's the thing I don't agree with. I've been thinking a lot about the essential philosophical contradiction between a Newtonian worldview, which I would say your view is nested inside, um, and a Darwinian worldview, because those views are not the same. They're seriously not the same. I mean, Dar the Darwinian view, as the American pragmatists recognized, so that was William James and his crowd, recognized almost, almost immediately was a form of pragmatism. And the pragmatists claim that the truth of a statement or process can only be adjudicated with regards to its efficiency with, with, in, in, attaining, in attaining its aim. If what you do works, then it's true enough. And that's all you can ever do. And so, and what Darwin did, as far as the pragmatists were concerned, was to put forth the following proposition, which was that it was impossible for a finite organism to keep up with a multi-dimensionally transforming landscape, environmental landscape, let's say. And so the best that could be done was to generate random variants, kill most of them because they were wrong, and let the others that were correct enough live long enough to propagate, whereby the same process occurs again. So you know, a scientist with any sense would say, well, you know, our truths are incontrovertible. Let's look at the results. And we could say, well, let's look at the hydrogen bomb. You know, if, if you want a piece of evidence that our theories about the subatomic structure of reality are accurate, you don't really have to look much farther than a hydrogen bomb. It's a pretty damn potent demonstration. Imagine for a moment that the invention of the hydrogen bomb did lead to the total elimination of human life. And so then I would say, well, the proposition that the universe is best conceptualized as subatomic particles was true enough to generate a hydrogen bomb, but it wasn't true enough to stop everyone from dying. And therefore, from a Darwinian perspective, it was a 
insufficient pragmatic proposition and was therefore in some fundamental sense wrong. And perhaps it was wrong because of what it left out. You know, maybe it's wrong in the Darwinian sense to reduce the complexity of being to um, a material substrate and forget about the surrounding context. The only final way of sorting out whether a scientific claim is sufficiently true is through Darwinian means. Because I think that the Darwinian process is the only way of adjudicating truth. Well, that was certainly an interesting exchange, and it was a surprise to me that Jordan Peterson felt that way about truth, especially after we did a whole show on him. And everything he, he said within the context of the things he said with his debate in, at the University of Toronto was consistent with rationality, with everything. He never brought up this point that his idea of truth is not truth in what we might say a factual sense, but more truth in a moral sense. Is, is that part of the, the distinction here? Right. So what we're hearing there between the two of them are two uh, theories of truth, two different theories of truth. One, Harris's view, which is what formally would be called a correspondence theory. And the other, uh, Gordon, or, uh, Jordan Peterson's view, being what is called a coherence Stop theory. right there. Yeah. Theory of truth? That's right. Isn't truth just a definition? Is, I, I didn't know there were theories of truth. Absolutely. So is there a theory of truth that says there's, you know, ghosts and goblins that fall from the sky and end up in the oceans and create fish? Is that a theory of truth? I think when they say theory of truth, they're meaning standard of truth. So by what means will we decide or according to what standard will we decide that something is true? And what does it mean for something to be true? So on, on Harris's view, correspondence, what we're dealing with is a, a system in which uh, Harris says, look, there are certain facts. They exist. Even if every single person on earth were dead, those facts would still be true. Apples would still fall from trees. The sky would still be blue and etc. And when we say something is true, what we mean is that our beliefs correspond to how things really are out there. They correspond to the facts of reality. So if I believe that the sky is blue, that's true. If I believe that the sky is, I don't know, uh, plaid, that's false. Now, according to which theory? Because the sky is blue, but I might not believe it. According to the correspondence theory, yeah. from what I understand, and Harris's viewpoint. That's but right. then again, according to Peterson's viewpoint, if you said that the sky was plaid, that would only be true or false on whether or not it it um, made person um, made a person or a species or a family extinct. <laughs> right. So so now we'll keep in mind, just, just finish on the correspondence part, you'll notice that with correspondence, it doesn't matter whether the fact that you've recognized is destructive of your life, harmful or helpful. It's it's just a fact. So, you know, sticking in a, a, a knife in your eye uh, might kill you or, or may leave you brain dead. That's a fact. It doesn't matter that it does or does not harm you. It only matters that it is a fact that it harms you. In other words, it's not necessarily good or bad that decides whether it's true, morally good or bad, useful or not, but rather just the fact that this is what happens, the end. In the coherence view that Jordan Peterson's looking at, Jordan Peterson's looking at, that coherence view does not deal with a correspondence to reality. Instead, what it says is, I have a bunch of beliefs in my head. And they all sort of fit together nicely like puzzle pieces. 
and you've now introduced a new proposition, and I've got to decide whether that proposition coheres, is compatible with, the other beliefs in my head. Is this something he just made up? Because i got to be honest with you, I've never heard of anything called a coherence view. Well, this comes and, from Hegel. Yeah? yeah? And that's what he called it? Yep, that's the coherence theory of truth. And Hegel basically was dealing with a, uh, uh, a proposal. His philosophy was such that there is no physical reality. It's just a, uh, you know, a flux and that... Um, very platonic. Yes, very... Yeah, that's right. It's all in the mind. It's very mind-oriented, not not a mind in, an, in a reality, but just a mind. And that uh, in the long run, it, truth consists of finding out all of the discovering all of the propositions that fit together. And we call that the absolute. That's the, the ultimate truth is the whole, the whole corpus of all of the propositions that are true that fit together. In other words, that cohere, that's the absolute or the absolute truth. And so when you hear... You can say that about any system of belief, really. That's, I, I suppose, but, but keep in mind, what's making it true in the coherence sense is that they fit together not whether they correspond to some external reality. That's got ah, nothing to do okay. with it. Okay. So if the pieces fit together, it doesn't matter. Let's imagine, for example... Well, if, rea if reality is not part of your scenario, any pieces can fit together, can't they? That's right. You could have a belief, a, a wide set of beliefs that are compatible with the idea that things fall up. And if that's what's in your brain, and then someone says, you know, apples fall to the ground, you would say, that does not cohere with my beliefs my beliefs would indicate that apples must fall up. They go up. And so uh, since you're proposing that apples go down, I say that that's not true. And if you, on the other hand, propose that apples fall up, I'm going to say, hey, that, that coheres with my beliefs, therefore true. So it has nothing to do with reality. It just has to do with coherence of the ideas in your head. And so you can see that Peterson is operating on a coherence view and that Harris is operating on this correspondence to reality view, and that Peter, uh, Harris does not seem to realize that Peterson is operating on a coherence view. Now, the other part of this, of course, is that Peterson's coherence view is a particular kind of coherence called a pragmatic theory of truth. Pragmatic, what would, what would make something cohere to a pragmatist? Well, it coheres, it's true enough, if... It's the case that the idea you're talking about is good, it's efficient, it does the thing that is good for you. In other words, uh, in Peterson's view, what is good, the definition of good, is that which makes you survive. And so if you have an idea, and for pragmatists, keep in mind, an idea doesn't, doesn't mean something like, you know, um, apples are red. No, no. For a pragmatist, all ideas are plans of action because the whole purpose of thinking is simply to survive to the next minute. And so everything is a plan of action. And the question of, of truth is, if I act upon this plan, will I survive? Will it help me to survive? If it's efficacious, if it gets me to survival, if it helps me get to the next day, it's true, or at least it's sufficiently true to get me to the next day. If, on the other hand, carrying out this plan of action gets me killed, then it's not sufficiently true. Well, what if carrying out this plan of action kills five other people because it helps you? Is that therefore truth and therefore you're okay to do it? Depends on the pragmatist. So some yeah. pragmatists thought that good is good for me, and other pragmatists thought, no, good means good for all of mankind. This is where I thought that Peterson was confusing, um, and not to disparage Peterson, who I think is a brilliant man, the terms moral and true. I got the impression as I was listening to the debate 
that he was using the terms interchangeably. When something he considered to be true, he also considered to be moral. In other words, it was true because it was moral. I mean, the good. You're correct. And that's exactly right. So if you look at these two views, correspondence says, if it's good, it is true. But the truth comes before the goodness. So only true things can be good. But the pragmatist turns it around and says, no, only good things can be true. And so, as you know, some have said, uh, for the correspondence theory, people, those who adhere to that uh, theory, um, the good is a species of the true. It's a subset of all subset, the true things. Yes, yeah. Whereas for the coherence theorist, like the pragmatist, the true is a species of the good. So some good things are true. <laughs> and in fact, I think for the, for the pragmatist, all good things are true, or at least they're true enough. Because when they say sufficiently true, true enough, etc., what they mean is, fill in the rest of the sentence, true enough to get me to survive, true enough to get me to the next day, true enough to achieve a good result. See, that is exactly where I, I cannot, and maybe just, like, maybe just like Sam Harris could not, understand that position because you're taking two different concepts, one of truth, which... In, in different contexts entirely. No, well, concepts, in what I'm saying, uh, one, is, one is being truth, which has uh, an objective reality, and the other one, which is moral or good or bad, which is an individual human being's decision of what is good or bad for him or her in, in relation to an external reality. Mm-hmm. And he's getting rid of all the external external reality. He's saying true is the same as moral, and he's blurred those two concepts. In other words, there's no two concepts to him. That which is true is moral. That which is moral is true. Correct. I, it's just... Well, not well, as, long as, as long as you you stick yourself to those two words and only work with those two, you're 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 really messing with your whole self. I, I, both of them got caught in that conversation, and I think there's some missing concepts here. If Peterson decided that some planet in the sky was there, but it wasn't true because it didn't fit some kind of objective of his, how does he therefore relate to the presence of that planet? And I think what he was calling truth. I think he was calling it the metaphysics. Well, you see, you just pointed to it. You said the presence of that planet. That's an idea, right? That it is present. But for, for a pragmatist, that planet exists is not an idea. Rather, and I, and I give this example in my paper, my response. Take, for example, Sam Harris. If he were to look at a grizzly bear, he would say, what is a grizzly bear? Well, it's a man-eating mammal with big teeth and lots of hair, and it's very fast. That's not how a pragmatist would look at a bear. Pragmatists would look at a bear and say, that thing means run. So A plan of action. Plan of action. And why, do, why does it mean run? Why is run a good idea when you see bear? Because that will make you survive. So will shooting the bear. So will flying. So will a lot of things. And, and his, you know, to the extent that those things will work, they are, quote unquote, sufficiently true. You see? Sufficient because in his view, there is no absolutely true. All there is is good enough for my purposes. If there can't be an absolute truth, there can't be sufficient truths either. I mean, there can't be any grade of something that you don't even acknowledge exists. Well, he's just saying good enough for my purposes, which are survival. It sounds very simplistic. It's not simple. I don't understand it at all. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I don't mean simple as in the sense of simple to understand, but simple in the fact that it, it, it eliminates in a whole 
different plane of thinking, the external world. Well, it's made even more complex by the fact that he brings in this Darwinism concept. So he says on the one hand, he says, look, your surroundings are constantly changing. The landscape, I think he refers to, is, is constantly changing. And that therefore there is no um, one set of genes or one set of ideas, is the analogy, that will forever be useful to the landscape. You have to keep adapting. And so what he's saying, by analogy to genetic adaptation, he's saying ideas adapt, your mind adapts as well over time as the facts change, or at least the things you encounter change and new, new plans of action have to be developed. The plans of action that work will be preserved. They survive in the Darwinian sense. The plans of action that fail will be discarded. They will be killed off in the Darwinian sense. And I think this is another line of miscommunication between um, Harris and Peterson, because I think when he, Peterson was talking about Darwinism, Harris was thinking about genetic development and over time, etc., whereas Peterson was talking about ideas being discarded or surviving. He was talking very analogously to genetic adaptation. He was saying this is mental adaptation, and that the pragmatists, when they saw Darwin's book, said, ah, see, even in the physical or biological world, it's the strong that survives and the weak that perish, and that's how we continue to survive. Let me take an example, and you tell me whether I'm thinking about this correctly or not in the, in the sense of Jordan Peterson would be. Um, I look at ideas. Okay, let's take an idea that is easy to understand, Sharia law. In Saudi Arabia, they live by Sharia law. It exists, and it has existed for hundreds of years. Therefore, would Peterson say that that is a moral truth? Sharia law as an idea, because it has existed and perpetuated itself in that locale, is morally the good because it has survived. I don't know that he would necessarily say that because, you know, there's clearly lots of self-destructive practices out there that have survived. So I think the test would be, is the practice of Sharia something that in fact is pro-survival? Or is the practice of Sharia, in fact, something that is anti-survival? And then you can have that argument at some point. Well, but, but from his point of view, is there an in fact? <laughs> well, that's a good, that's a good point. You know? I'm, in fact, I don't think he would say in fact. Yeah. I mean, I'm saying that, but I think he would say, take out the in fact. Just say, does the practice of Sharia promote survival or not? Well, the, considering the fact that you have the fact of 1.5-ish billion uh, Muslims in the world, many of whom practice Sharia, you could, according to Peterson, say, quite, quite frankly, that that is a moral good, that it is true and it is morally proper because apparently it has created millions of babies who survive to reproduce. That's true, uh, although I guess it would depend on his standards. So if he says, is it good for the individual? You know, then he would say, well, not for the one who's getting his head ah. chopped off. If, on the other hand, he's saying for all Muslims as a group or a collective, then he could probably say yes. If that's your standard of, of the good, the survival of the group, then, yeah, he probably on the pragmatic standard would have to say that Sharia is a good idea and sufficiently true. Okay. I, okay. Got it. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what else to say. I well, mean, I, I know. I think what we should do is is find out why would anyone want or need to adopt a pragmatic theory of truth? Why would they not be able to just accept the correspondence theory? And I think what we're going to hear next might explain some of that. The truth value of any given statement can't be held hostage 
to its ultimate result for the survival of the species in the end. Yes, I, I think it can. That's where we disagree. I could be sitting in a room in my house and say, well, there's no fire in this, in this room, and the rest of the house could be on fire. And it's factually true that there's no fire in this room, but as a theory, it's a pretty stupid one. But it was still true to say that there was no fire in your room. The fire was outside your room. It's a, it's yeah, well, a it truth was, that doesn't get you true. anything. It was true, nested in a larger truth of falsehood. Because the relevant issue is, is there a fire around that's going to kill me? If I say, well, there's no fire in this room, well, I suppose that's trivially true. But I would say I've certainly adopted a dopey framework of reference within which to ask that question. But your concept of truth is collapsing everything back to whether we survive. Right. Presumably whether, whether, whether we survive doing. happily, right? No, just whether or not we survive. But the problem with that is that now you have a situation where your conception of factual accuracy is continually vulnerable to changes in human history, which could happen in, in a million years. When do we finally get to cash this check epistemologically? Let's say we survive for a million years. I don't know if we ever get to cash it. That's the problem with the Darwinian perspective, is that you're never right. You're only sufficiently right to go ahead. If there's someone going around Toronto killing people for not being able to name all the U.S. presidents in sequence, and let's say he's wrong about what the sequence is. So if you give him a sequence that is, in fact, inaccurate, that is untrue, but it works for him and you survive, it doesn't make it true, right? I mean, you, you need a concept of truth that flows three. It, it makes it true enough to survive. Yes, it makes it useful. It's a good thing you got the wrong sequence, but we yes, still... Yes, I did, I did tell you at the beginning that I was a pragmatist nested in Darwin, Darwinism. To me, it's obvious that we're approaching this from, I would say, almost different ontological perspectives. And the reason we're stuck on this discussion is because you won't allow me to make a distinction between provisional factual truths, which I, I don't want to dispute because it's self-evident that they're correct. But that isn't what I'm saying. I'm saying that there's an underlying metaphysics that's at question here. There's a claim inside Darwin, Darwinian thinking, which was recognized by all the pragmatists who were very, very smart people, that you the truth metaphysic, there's truth metaphysic nested in Darwinian, Darwinian theory, which is that you don't, you don't have access to the truth, even if you think you have. The best you have are the truths that support the probability that you will continue with your existence and the existence of the species. And there is no, no. truth outside that. Despite what you just heard, you are listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. <laughs> Thank you to all of our financial supporters who have made it possible for us to continue our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with the world. Be sure to visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support. And while you're there, sample some of our timeless past broadcasts, which are all archived for your listening enjoyment and at your convenience, including a past broadcast about Jordan Peterson, in which we never clued in on any of these things. <laughs> 
So uh, I have to tell you, Robert, you had a question. Um, yeah, and if you're uh, if you are a, per- a person who actually takes the Peterson point of view, donating to Just Right will continue your survivability. <laughs> okay, so just remember that <laughs> when you click the donate button. Well, I got to tell you. Now, actually, what I heard just then was just uh, actually quite fascinating, quite fascinating. We're getting into the mind of a man, and if you take that on a macro scale to the mind of many men, what we're witnessing here is the basis for things like religion. You're looking at somebody who thinks that there is a higher moral good which encompasses absolutely everything, including truth, reality, science, superstition. Everything is a subset of an external, actually an internal, view of the world which cannot be understood and yet drives Jordan Peterson's behavior. And, and beliefs and, and understanding. Um, because I'm taking Sam Harris's point of view on this, even though I don't agree with Sam Harris on a lot of things that he's written, this particular point of view of Sam Harris's I agree with, an objective truth that we have to discover. And um, fascinating, fascinating look into the mind of Mr. Uh, or, or Dr. Peterson, don't you think, Paul? Yeah, I, I think what we're seeing here is, and again, I think you know part of the problem here was Dr. Peterson graciously assumed, having identified himself as a pragmatist, and again, Dr. Harris having said, well, I know what pragmatism means, that there was no need to get into the underlying beliefs. But what the underlying beliefs are, and I can tell you this just you know, from studying pragmatism, is that we are nothing other than our experiences. There is no external reality at all. It makes no sense. It's, it's just like saying gibbledy-gobbledygook. It means absolutely nothing to talk about the real world, external reality, objects, things in the world. Uh, none of that makes any sense to a, to a pragmatist because a pragmatist says they adopt the view, uh, the sensualist view, it's called in, in philosophy, that really all there is, all you can think about are the data delivered by your senses. A pragmatist doesn't get into why did your senses send you that data? What caused your senses to provide that data? Uh, Is it an external reality? Did God give it to you? Did your own mind cause your senses to create that data? They don't get into that. They say we have no data about the source of that data. So all we know is our sensations, our experiences. And because we have no access to reality, we can't possibly have a theory of truth that's based on a correspondence between what's in our head and what's outside of our head. There is no outside of our head. And so that's why I think you're seeing uh, in this debate, Peterson and and uh, Harris talking cross purposes. Harris is assuming that Peterson believes in an external reality, and I don't think Peterson does. So they really have to, as pragmatists, believing that all that exists is their experiences, that they are their experiences and nothing other. That, you know, I, they have to have a redefinition of truth and that's when you get into this coherence. Well, coherence just means that all the thoughts in my head fit together like nice puzzle pieces. I, I don't think Peterson's rejecting reality. I think he's calling it something different. And what made this debate so fascinating is that I thought they could have carried on their conversation if they had only agreed to disagree on a definition. But each was determined 
to stick to the word that they wanted to use to describe their concept rather than make the concession, which I have done many times on this show, to say, okay, we won't use that word the same way as you're doing, but we'll, we'll take your definition. He refers to what we would call as the truth or fact as the metaphysic. And he said the correct factual metaphysics. That means he accepts the fact that X is out there. He's just not calling that truth. He's calling that a metaphysic. I'm going to disagree with you. I'm going to because you know this talk. And disagree you, with me or disagree with disagree my interpretation? With your, your of, interpretation. Okay. So they get into this discussion where they say, "Well, that's proc." This is uh, Dr. Peterson talking to Dr. Harris. Mm-hmm. He'll say. You're, you're focusing on these tiny micro examples, these toy examples where something's proximally true, like, yes, the bomb went off and now that confirms our, like, our like views. Like sufficiently about, right. Either something's right well, or... Well, that's not, not there. Not He's the not same. there yet. He's just saying, that's a fact. You know, he's saying it's a fact in the sense that, okay, you've tested the bomb and now you believe that this is what happens when, the, when you run off the bomb. That's a fact, but it's not true. Okay? So he says it's a fact because it's a, it's like a proposition but it's devoid of any moral consideration so it's not a thing that is true until you examine whether it is an effective plan of action and if it is you know to develop the bomb or to use act upon the development of the bomb if that's a good thing a survival promoting thing then we can say it's not merely a fact it's true you know it's so, funny because we've actually did a show where we talked about even though you may have certain facts it may not make them right hmm. or true hmm. uh, because of one's interpretation. Well, that f- is not facts, Peterson's view. Though. Facts are not truth. They they can be true, but yeah. they are not truth. Yeah. And as we've always, as I argue on this show, the truth is in the story, in what the bigger, how all the facts fit together, and how you how you tie them together in your quote story, which could be could mean philosophy or 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 your metaphysic or your epistemology, right? That's where you find the truth, not in the facts. And sometimes I was wondering if the two of them were just playing with words at this level, just not getting back to those points and getting back to what they're good at. <laughs> Again, I think they were sort of talking past one another oh, and probably, sure. you know, taking each other at their word and that they really didn't know what they were talking about. But I, I think that the conversation probably would have been more successful and the, and the discussion of truth would have been much more brief had uh, Dr. Harris been more familiar with the underpinnings of pragmatic truth because they're so hard to believe. They're so fantastic, as they say, that who would ever believe that, that, that anyone walks around with a theory of truth founded on that? Well, it's, it's very similar to a person, for example, Sam Harris is an atheist. Jordan Peterson, as I understand it, is a Christian. Mm-hmm. It is very difficult, and I know this from practice, <laughs> to talk to a person of faith on reality or what you understand to be the truth using reason or empirical evidence. When a person of faith says, I just believe it because I believe it, the, the conversation stops. Right. It cannot proceed. Mm-hmm. And I think this is exactly what happened here, is that they just slipped the gears. The conversation just went on in a direction. Um, the, the wheels were spinning, but they weren't getting anywhere. Because mm-hmm. um, on Jordan Peterson's point of view, which he was f- upfront and honest about, yep. saying, look, I'm a pragmatist. Harris was incredulous. Well, I've talked to a lot of pragmatists, and I would never have assumed with all those pragmatists that they would have had such an extreme view of what they consider to be real 
or unreal in terms of just what he calls the metaphysic. The That's why I think uh, Jordan Peterson is a very brilliant and intelligent man, is because he understands the terms implicitly about what he's talking about. You can talk to a person of faith, and they have a vague generality about what they believe in if they're a religious person based on faith. Jordan Peterson understands exactly what he's talking about and can use the proper philosophic jargon to describe exactly where he's coming from. It just, yeah. it just, just to the layperson, it just sounds rather incredulous. Yeah, you know, and there's another angle we haven't really discussed on this, and this is this, this idea of proximally true and distally true, you know. And proximally true, when he says, when, when Peterson says proximally true, he's saying, well, yeah, of course, you know, this room is not on fire, like I said. It's a fact, he says. It's not necessarily true. It's a fun. fact, but the, the, the question isn't, is the room on fire? The relevant question is, am I about to be burned to death? Okay, here's a relevant question for you. Would a person like Peterson even be able to acknowledge a truth if there was no action attached to it? If So therefore, nothing outside his realm of action exists, is possible, happens, nothing. That's, That's how I see his interpretation of the world. Yeah, all ideas are plans of action, that's correct. So I think he could understand the facts of reality, couldn't he? Like, for example, that a planet does exist elsewhere, um, but... To him, it doesn't matter. It's not true. And I think he's uh, just just mangling that word true um, and using it in a, in a sense that is, well, opposite of the dictionary sense of the word. I mean, the thing about pragmatism is that as much as it talks about a rejection of a correspondence theory of truth, or as much as it's built on a rejection of the idea that we have any access at all to how the world really is, implicit in their own theory of truth is a correspondence theory of truth. So, for example, you have a plan of action, and it is going to be judged as true if it achieves, if it's efficacious in achieving some good result, some pro-survival result. Well, that means you started at position A and you ended at position B, or you started at state A and you ended at state B. In other words, going from A to B, or going from A, according to a plan of action, was efficacious in getting to state B. Well, how on earth are you going to talk about what state A is or what state B is unless you're saying it is true that state A is this and it is true that state B is that? You know, this is very reminiscent of a quote from Ayn Rand that um, when I listened to this came to mind. I have it in front of me. It says, let the witch doctor who does not choose to accept the validity of sensory perception try to prove it without using the data he obtained by sensory perception. It's very tautological. It's circular of an Mm -hmm. argument of of Peterson to say uh, what he's saying. Yeah, I think, well, I mean, he's not going to be special in in being a pragmatist who smuggles in correspondence to a, you know, nominally pragmatist or slash... Concept stealing. Yeah, there's some concept stealing going on here where there's a bit of a blank out going on. Of course, you have to keep in mind that pragmatism is no longer the vibrant school of philosophy that it was in the earlier part of the 20th century. So, you know, I'm not saying there aren't any pragmatists around, but it's certainly the case that it's not the thriving movement it was in academia in the earlier part of the 20th century. So, and part of that reasoning is, over time, you examine a philosophy and you say, wait a minute, we've got some flaws here. How do you explain what state A is and what state B is, if you're saying doing this gets you effectively from state A to state B, if you can't even describe state A or state B, because A and B, they're not plans of action. They're the beginning state and the end state. The action's what happens between. That's a good point. Or how can you describe something that doesn't exist yet that you want to bring into existence? 
Right. Either through creation, artwork, having children, anything like and that. And indeed, how can you even talk of existence if you can't speak about external reality? It's not even part of your lingo if your ideas are all about plans of action. That's why I think that it was very appropriate to have The Matrix as the opening clip to this show, because it brought into um, reality all of the things that we're talking about. Is reality a, a, a matrix? Is it a simulation? Um, or is it real? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the desert of the real. And, and to a certain extent, I think we're seeing the, the desert of the, of the, the pragmatist um, theory of truth. I mean, it's ultimately dry and, and not going to work. <laughs> not going to be true, you mean? <laughs> it's not going to survive. <laughs> the desert of the pragmatism. Uh, you know, a lot of people might not think that we're being fair to pragmatism, that this is somehow a mischaracterization. And I really think it's important to hear from someone who's, for example, a noted, you know, professor who's a person who's, a, you know, a master of the history of philosophy. And I can think of nobody better than um, Dr. Leonard Peikoff. Hobbes's view is that we do not perceive reality directly. We only perceive the appearances of reality to us, the effects of reality on us, the way it affects our brains and senses. We don't perceive reality directly, or we don't perceive it as it really is. In effect, we're all locked up inside our own minds. We know our own experiences directly, and that's all. Perception, therefore, is really a species of introspection. Looking out doesn't really exist. All looking out is a form of looking in. Now, this viewpoint is called the causal theory of perception. Now, some advocates of the causal theory simply stop there and say reality is unknowable since we never encounter it. How do you know there is a reality at all if you're locked up experiencing your own subjective experiences? Well, of course, the advocates of this viewpoint say, well, there must be a reality which caused our experiences. That's the causal theory of perception. Well, of course, later philosophy proceeded promptly to challenge this inference to ask, why does there have to be an external world causing my experiences? Why couldn't God, for instance, directly cause my experiences in me? Which is the position taken by Bishop Barclay. Why does there have to be a cause at all? Why, let's go by the observed facts. All we observe is our own experiences. That's therefore all we have a right to believe in. Which is the position taken by David Hume, who threw out the law of cause and effect along with reality. Now you'll see that by this route, the whole external world will shortly vanish. Well, you may ask then, what does exist according to the pragmatists? Well, here the pragmatists have an answer. The world is comprised of experience. It's a flow of experiences, and that's all. So an idea for a pragmatist is not an identification of some fact of reality. An idea is a plan of action, telling you how to achieve your practical goals. The plan of action, the idea you come up with, will tell you in pattern, if you do so-and-so, this will be the consequence. If we then act on the plan, and it works when we act on it, if the results that it predicts come to pass, then the plan worked, and that means the idea is true. There's no such thing as one right answer 
to any question. All there is is an answer which works okay for us now. There are no absolutes on this view. There's no such thing as absolute truth. What works today need not work tomorrow. The concepts we use to interpret the world have also developed via the evolutionary struggle. And the ones that have lasted have lasted because they have worked up to now. Our mental processing apparatus develops. It changes. It evolves across time. And we can put it to the test at any given time and see, does this particular way of interpreting the world work or not? And if it does, we'll keep it as long as it works. And if it doesn't, we'll throw it out and try something else. Now, to be sure, we can't know that the ones that work better are, quote, really true, that that's the way things really are. But we don't have to say that's the way things really are. Let's simply say that the purpose of thought is not to attain some unattainable certainty about the way things really are, but simply practical, to achieve practical ends. Let's redefine the very concept of truth. We'll abandon the idea that there's a reality out there, that there's a consciousness in here, inside each of us heads, each of our heads, and that the consciousness is attempting to recognize or grasp the nature of reality. The pragmatists dispense entirely with that model. The pragmatists' whole philosophy starts with the idea you cannot know the way things really are. Therefore, we must reconceive what truth consists of. You know, there's a certain sense of irony I'm feeling here with Jordan Peterson, who has become famous of late because of his opposition to the moral relativistic nature of education <laughs> in the universities today. He has been vilified because he refuses to use the personal pronouns that have been coming uh, forced into usage by what I would say are the pragmatists of the world, <laughs> the people exactly who actually right. I was just hold seeing his sh- philosophy. The on the other foot. You know, at one point in their discussion, and they didn't, get, they didn't go down this road, but uh, Sam Harris did say, you know, you may fall prey on your own theory of truth. You may fall prey to the very people who are terrorizing you right now These the, on the, on the uh, gender issue. It's like uh, the transgender issue, for example. A person born a man has uh, uh, the chromosomes of a man saying that, no, I'm a woman. Today, I'm a rabbit. Today, I'm a hedgehog. Whatever. In other words, it's a denial of reality. It's all in their head. They have a subjective viewpoint of reality. And unfortunately, this is also Dr. Jordan Peterson's view. It is a subjective, pragmatic reality rather than the objective reality of, uh, of Sam Harris. And he is going to be falling on his own sword. I think the difference might be his saving grace might be, if he were to try and distinguish himself, if he were to try and distinguish his pragmatic theory of truth from the way that the, the gender pronoun people are pushing their agenda, he could say that, look, what the gender pronoun people are doing is saying, you must, as a matter of law, I will throw you in jail if you don't, use the pronouns that I require you to use. This is a new law. He was referring to a new Canadian law under Trudeau, which would require people a gender identity is now included in the human right. Attack. If someone says I need to be called Zer, then you have to use Zer as their as their pronoun, not Mister, not Miss, or what have you. 
and that there's consequences, including potentially criminal consequences, if you refuse to do so. And he was saying in his at University of Toronto that he refused to do so and he didn't care that, what the consequences would be. Now, his consequences uh, that he sees, of, um, you know, playing along with these folks, obeying the law, he says they're horrific consequences. That and he's they seen are. Them. Yeah, that he's seen them in history and that ultimately when you take control of the language, which is what they want to do, in other words, in a very Orwellian way, limit the scope of what you can say, punish you for saying certain things a certain way or for saying certain things at all, He's saying, I think that by his own Darwinian test, a society in which there is that kind of oppression, when, the, when there's that kind of thought control and word control, that that would not be a, survival, a, a, a society that would survive. In other words, it's a, a self-destructive mode of existence, and that he might say that for that reason, it's not sufficiently true. Right. So he's being internally consistent with his philosophy by rejecting the personal pronoun issue and the and the force of law that would make him do that. Yeah, if he can make the case that, you know, distally or in the in the greater picture, what they're doing is exceptionally destructive to humankind or to the individual, then I think he's being consistent within his theory of truth. He's saying that, you know, this is not sufficiently true to act upon. But that that's from his own personal viewpoint, from the personal viewpoint of the Bruce Jenners or the Caitlyn Jenners out there. They're doing something which, in their mind, is going to be morally true because it enhances their survivability, according to them. So don't you see the uh, the uh, inherent problem oh, yes. with having a pra- pragmatic philosophy that Jordan Peterson had? You know, we always talk about the philosophical hierarchy. They're talking about a hierarchy of truth. And in our philosophical hierarchy, we always talk about reality, reason, self, and consent. Would I be correct in assuming that Peterson is working on a hierarchy of morality, consent, reason, and reality, working backwards? He might not even get to reality. I, I know. Think. Yeah, I think he might get to, uh, how did you put it, morality, consent, consent just, yeah, uh, and reason, and then experience. Uh, and that experience uh, is his be, reality. Yeah. Hmm. So the, the perceptual level to him is where you stop. The sensory level is not. Our connection to reality are our senses. Yeah. From the senses, we then make perceptions. In other words, we integrate our senses into percepts. From percepts become concepts. And then from concepts, we can go on from there to higher level thinking like morality. Mm -hmm. What I think Jordan Peterson is saying is that morality exists first. And then you work backward, but you stop at percepts. You cannot even say that there are senses because yeah, we fact, have no connection to I reality. I don't even think he would get to percepts. I really? think, yeah, it's, they're sensualists. Uh, the pragmatists are largely human. You know, they, they say that we've got this sense data, but we can't take that data and assume that it belongs together in, a, you know, the red plus the round plus the twig plus the leaf. We can't say that that's an apple. All we have is a stream of experience that happens to be together in that combination today, but tomorrow might not be. Uh, there's no reason to believe that there's an entity out there, a percept. And so they're just stuck at this sort of buzzing level of feeling. And, and when you're like that, I mean, when you're, when you're taking that view, the feelings in you, feelings of anger, feelings of passion, and et cetera, they too are like sensory experiences. And so, you know, you might say pain, pleasure, or good, evil, or destruction is in some sense a first level sensation. And that, yes, he's starting with that because in fact, he's saying that's all we can have is are these sensations. That's all we can think about. And for, so it's perfectly okay for me to start with a feeling and say that that's the ground, just like Hume did, that reason is a slave of the passions. That was, that was Hume's view. 
And I think probably for Gordon Peterson, that may be the truth as well. I have to get back to this issue of knowledge. Peterson seemed oblivious to the idea that knowledge can be applied to both good and evil purposes, for example. Therefore, he would regard knowledge itself as invalid, would he not, if that knowledge resulted in evil or undesirable results, or would it still be knowledge? And in if case, if it is knowledge, then what's it knowledge of if he rejects? Well, you know, what's interesting it, that um, he was given a s scenario where there are two labs on opposite sides of the earth. This is one of the scenarios presented to him by Dr. Harris. These labs are almost identical. They say they're operating on the same premises and et cetera, but they're, they're operating on um, a virus, a deadly virus. I think it was smallpox, he mm -hmm. said. And he says on one, in one of the labs, there's an accident and the virus gets out into the general public, killing half the population of the earth, while in the other lab, they develop a vaccine that saves the other half of the population of the earth. And Harris says, well, look, you've got half the earth surviving because of the vaccine and half the earth dying because of the vaccine. What do you say to that? Sounds like Schrodinger's cat here. <laughs> <laughs> but the answer was, was illuminating because he came down to this idea, well, yes, Proximally, in the one lab, you've it's it's a fact that this had a, a positive effect, and distally, it's it's a different thing because we're looking distally at both labs, and we say overall, half the Earth died, but that wouldn't have been the case had neither lab been messing around with the smallpox vaccine. Therefore, it's not sufficiently true. It's not a good plan of action to mess around with the smallpox vaccine. And so you can see by, by changing the frame of reference, by pulling the camera bit back a bit, he can say, well, overall, either from a distance or from a, over a greater period Actually, of time. Actually, you can't say anything because to, to be able to make those kinds of judgments, you have to be able to have lived the future and then look past. It's all, it's all hindsight, hindsight philosophy. Well, that, was certainly, that was certainly the criticism of, of Sam Harris. When do you get the cash, to yeah. cash, cash the check? But the thing that... Uh, even if you get to the point you think you're at, time doesn't stop. Things still may turn out worse. It's like unseen, for, uh, and, and, unseen circumstances. And Peterson acknowledges that, yeah. to be fair. He says, that's right, you never get to cash the check. Time keeps on marching on. Things keep on changing. And that's why you need a Darwinian system of truth where yesterday's truths become tomorrow's not sufficiently truths and, and, and uh, things that were not even an idea yet become the new truths and other truths maintain for a long time because they keep on working for survival. But you never get to cash the check. There is no ultimate collection of propositions like Hegel thought. There is no end point where you finally have all the true propositions and the clock stops. I don't know what the final lesson is here. What would you say? Did you uh, want to close anything else off? Well, I would just all? say that whenever you're finding yourself in a situation where you think you're talking past someone or you're not quite getting it, you follow Ayn Rand's eternal words, check your premises. And just for those people who might be interested, if we haven't mentioned it yet, and you want to listen to the entire Jordan Peterson debate, with Sam Harris. It, it occurred on Waking Up with Sam Harris number 62, which was broadcast on January 21st, 2017, for anybody who wants to check it out online. Right. And also, don't forget to look at Paul McKeever, our guest's insight into that particular debate by going to Paul's site, which is Paul? blog.paulmckeever.ca. Well, thanks for joining us today, Paul. I'm sure this is a conversation that isn't going to end anytime soon. I was pleased to hear that you think that perhaps pragmatism is on the decline and is now being more questioned in North American philosophy. And so perhaps we could say that for Hume, the bell does indeed toll. <laughs> and we'll end it on that. Be sure to join us again next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Hey.
it into color and color it to black and white under the bedclothes everything will be alright but I am into the intellectual thing I went to college I studied the great philosophers uh, Socrates uh, <laughs> I studied Plato and, uh, you know, you learn the important things. Like if you're studying geology, which is all facts, as soon as you get out of school, you forget it all, you know? Because it's just numbers and things.